This happened years ago. I was using a Motorola flip phone so that I might help date it for you. I was on the last train home from a night out in Manchester. The train got in around 11.40 p.m. and I had about a mile walk to get home. This is a very familiar route along the main road, but I lived in a pretty small suburban town so by that time the roads were dead. The only other passengers quickly dispersed and I found myself walking home alone. I hadn't really noticed how quiet it was as I was using my phone to talk with a friend. I became aware of a beat up old car creeping alongside me at my walking pace and a guy with a gut looking at me from the driver's seat. I couldn't make out any facial features in the dark and he was alone in the car. I remember the car was a mess, rubbish on the dash, just really messy. I was suddenly on high alert. This wasn't normal. For some reason I ended the conversation as I wanted to keep my wits about me. But in hindsight, I probably should have stayed on the phone. I looked at the guy and shrugged and made signs for him to drive on and leave me alone. He just kept driving at my pace. His face, now lit up by the streetlights, was expressionless. This went on for a few excruciating minutes and then all of a sudden he sped off. I relaxed thinking that he was just messing with me and he had his fun and is now driving off. I then saw him turn into a petrol station up ahead. The petrol station was closed, all lights off and there would be no reason for him to pull in there. It was also right on my route home. I would have to pass it. Everything was telling me not to walk past and that he was waiting for me. I then held back and decided to call my friend who lived nearby and he said that he would be right out to meet me so I needed to give him a couple minutes to get dressed and get out to me. I waited by a bank and obviously didn't walk past the petrol station. He hadn't came out in this time. He was still there. When an amount of time had passed and I hadn't walked by, the car pulled out and headed towards me again. I was freaking out now. This guy then just parked right next to me where I stood, just staring at me. He didn't make any moves to get out of the car. I then start to run to the direction my friend would be coming from and he starts following me again and again at my pace. Luckily, I see my friend running towards me and I guess the driver saw him too as he then speeds up and drives away. I think he was just trying to fuck with me but it does creep me out wondering what would have happened if I had walked past the petrol station that night. It was a summer right after I graduated high school. A good friend and I decided to try our hand at camping. We grew up in the greater Los Angeles area, so our knowledge of the great outdoors was nothing beyond a couple years of Cub Scouts when we were in elementary school. In other words, we had almost no idea what we were doing. We packed a tent, a couple sleeping bags, supplies, etc., and headed off in his car. Note, I grew up in the 80s, we drove north of the 395 for about six hours and then headed westward into a mountains in the area of the Inyo Canyon. First mistake, we didn't plan on which place to camp. We played it by ear, i.e. like fools. Second mistake, we left in the mid-afternoon. 
It was pitch black darkness when we arrived in the general area. We had driven off the main road onto a dirt road in order to find a spot to camp. The dust from driving on a dirt road overwhelmed the headlight high beams when we finally decided to pull over and set up camp. It was around 11.30 at that time and we were exhausted and famished. Any place was a good spot to camp for us given our only reason to do so at that point was our hunger and exhaustion. Third mistake, we didn't bring flashlights. We only had Bic lighters for our cigarettes. We tried to set up our tent using the lighters and the headlights from the car, which was parked about 10 to 15 feet away. The wind was blowing, so the lighter constantly went off after a few seconds, either directly because of the wind or indirectly because the wind would push the flame to our thumb. Clearly, we were being complete idiots. We finished setting up the tent, but at that point, I was too tired to eat. My friend managed to make some instant ramen. We smoked a cigarette in the car and then crashed out in the tent. We awoke to a very cold morning. It must have been around 5.30. Immediately upon exiting the tent, we realized that we were camped at the entrance of a hiking trail. There were at least two no camping signs in visible distance from us. We dismantled the tent, cleaned up, and cleared out. That morning, we ended up buying some cheap flashlights and a nice hot meal in a very small town. It wasn't really a town, more like a few storefronts and shops on a main road about the length of an average city block. We went into some office, though I don't recall exactly what it was. It might have been a park ranger station or the office headquarters for a campground. In any case, we found and reserved a site for the night. The campground was basically a large circle with campsites along the circumference, with each campsite being around 50 yards from its neighbors. In the middle of the circle was a common area for bathrooms and showers. We circled it once, and I think that we saw that one family was all set up with their tent and camper. We found our spot and set up our camp, which was quite far from them. That night was when we had our creepy encounter. My friend and I were laying in the tent, shining our flashlights upwards and chatting. Our new flashlights would eventually give out, yes, broken. Our fire pit was about six feet from the opening of our tent, and it was just glowing ambers at that point. We probably should have completely put it out, and we probably shouldn't have had our tent so close. In any case, there we were, chatting away and having a good time. My friend began to be distracted with his foot. After the third or fourth time, he got up to check his foot. I asked him what was wrong. He told me that something was tapping his foot from the outside of the tent. His foot was against the side of the tent wall, so from the outside you'd be able to see the bulge from the tent side where his foot was. It was as if pebbles were being thrown at his foot through the tent. There it was again. What the hell? Each time it happened, there was a sound like pebbles or a light tap. We sort of laughed it off, assuming it was a twig or grass moving in the wind, or perhaps a loose strap on the outside of the tent. I don't recall exactly how it happened at first, but I do remember we suddenly became silent at the same time. A sound came to be audible for both of us, footsteps slowly moving towards our tent. We wondered if it was a bear or other non-human animal, but it seemed distinctly bipedal. They were very slowly and measured, like a step every two seconds. 
I finally said in a whisper, Someone's coming. My friend didn't move. His face had an expression of fear. At some point, my friend bolted up and said, Fuck this. He grabbed his pipe, stuffed it full of pot, and took the biggest, deepest drags I've ever seen a person take. About one or two minutes later, he was out. Drugs aren't my thing, so I was alone in the tent, as far as conscious bodies are concerned. I was sitting up at this point, and I had taken out the only weapon I had, a Swiss Army pocket knife. I took out the big and small blades, as well as had the ice pick in the middle, and held it in like some ridiculous melee weapon. I could see the glowing ambers in the fire pit through the sheer nylon material of our tent, and I was able to roughly, but barely, discern some of the rocks around it. I watched and listened intently. The footsteps came closer, and at the same slow pace. With each step, I could hear the dirt and rocks underfoot crunching and grinding. At some point, it was clear to me that whoever it was was standing between the tent and fire pit. From my fuzzy line of sight to the burning ambers through the nylon tent, became obscured by something outside the tent. The footsteps stopped right in front of the tent, about 8 inches from the tent, no more than a foot from the entrance of the tent. It was silent for about a minute, and then I heard a click. At the exact same time, I saw through the nylon wall of the tent, a flashlight turn on. I was able to see not just the flashlight, but the outline of the hand holding it. The flashlight was shining on the zipper of the entrance of the tent, just inches away from the zipper. Blood drained from my head, and my palms instantly became dripping with sweat. I yelled, Who's there? There was some fear in my voice, but it was mostly an aggressive tone. Whoever it was, the person immediately turned off their flashlight. I didn't move, but neither did they. The person just stood there inches from the tent entrance. My friend is out, totally unaware of what's going on. Nevertheless, I pretended that he was still awake and whispered loud enough to be audible to our visitor. Yes, loaded. One in the chamber. As if my friend was asking me about my gun. Fourth mistake. We didn't have a gun or any real weapon for self-defense. It felt like an eternity, but after sitting there for almost ten minutes, I heard the feet slowly turn in the dirt, then slowly walk away from the tent. I stayed up the whole night. And it wasn't until the light of day came through the tent that I finally crashed out. The heat inside the tent woke us up and it was near noon by that point. We went outside to inspect the site but found nothing missing. However, we did find boot prints leading away from our campsite and outside the campground. That was the last time I camped in a tent. When I was in high school, I was home alone and listening to music loud in my room. We have a security system that causes each door or window when open in the house to make a beep beep sound as an alert. For some reason, I thought that it would be funny to joke that someone had broken into my house while I was home alone. I tweeted something along the lines of, someone just came into my house, followed by just kidding. I don't know what drove me to post something so stupid. It was ridiculous, but I was also 15 years old at the time. A few minutes after that tweet, the song that I was listening to ended, and it was silent before the next song started to play. All I heard was, beep beep, 
It was the front door. I heard it open, but not close. My dog was sitting on the staircase, which led straight up to my room. She was in the view of the door, but I couldn't see her. I heard her growl in a way I had never heard before. At that moment, I just got a gut feeling that something bad was about to happen, so I shut off my music and stayed as quiet as possible. My dad was out of state traveling, and my mom and sister were at the park. I had a gut feeling that it wasn't my mom, so instead of asking if it was her, I texted her, asking if she was home. Right away, she texted me back saying no, that they were at the same park. At that moment, I stuck into my closet and called 911. The operator told me to stay on the phone with her and to stay quiet. The police showed up after what felt like an hour. My mom came home at the same time and they reviewed the security cameras. The cameras would record in sections, if that makes sense. So all they could find on the cameras was a silhouette standing in the front of the door with the light shining in from behind them. Nothing was showing that could identify whoever it was. I have no idea who opened the front door, but it never happened again. So I've had quite a few bad experiences with strange people at my house. From when I was young, an old man would come bang on our door late at night demanding to see me, causing me to have to hide in the house and not being allowed into the garden alone for years. Or when a man came knocking on our door late at night with a knife because he mistook our house for our neighbors. These experiences all caused me to be very cautious when opening the front door to anyone or being alone in the house, especially at night. But one evening was definitely the worst. It was around 6pm in November 2018. I'm from England, meaning it was already pitch black outside at this time of the year. I just got home from work and sat in my room upstairs watching YouTube on my laptop. My mom shouted up to me that she was going to pick up my brother from work and they would be stopping off at the petrol station on the way back. So she would be gone for a little bit and asked if I wanted to come. I said no and carried on with my video. I heard her close the front door and pull out of the driveway. I was 17 at the time. So being home alone at night was nothing new to me and I was used to the eerie feeling of it. After 10 minutes, I start hearing noises coming from downstairs. At first, I thought nothing of it and just related it to my cat nosily searching for food in an empty bowl until I remember him sitting at the end of my bed. I paused the video and listened more at the sound of banging on my door. This instantly creeped me out until it was followed by keys jiggling. And I thought, oh, mom must have just dropped off my brother before going to the petrol station and he's trying to get inside. So I let the noise continue as I was watching my video. He can get quite angry sometimes, so loud banging was not out of the ordinary, but just kept carrying on. The banging sound and the key jiggling, then dropping, then banging again. Then the fear really hit me I don't think it's him. I walked out of my room slowly and sat at the stairs listening carefully to the noise. It definitely wasn't him. I'm a very anxious person and everyone gives those times late at night when they hear noises and immediately thinks the worst. This was just one of those I told myself. 
So I decided to bite the bullet and just walk straight into the kitchen and face whatever was causing that noise. Our kitchen has a door straight into the garden, but as I turned the corner into the kitchen, I heard a loud bang and clatter of footsteps running away. The cat flap had been ripped off the door and there's plastic pieces from it everywhere. In fear, I still try to console myself into thinking that it could be anything other than people trying to break in. I sat back on the stairs and called my mom just to check again that it wasn't my brother home early and just in a bad mood. But then he answered my mom's phone while still in the car. Are you home? I shouted at him. No. Then my voice started to break with terror. Please be serious. Are you at home right now? No. What do you want? Even though he said he wasn't, I still begged in my mind that he was just joking just to get a scare out of me. But he heard how scared I was and began to worry. I explained to him what happened and he started to scream at me to call the police. He's never been the protective type, but I could tell that he was now worried and he told my mom to rush back home straight away. While dialing 999, I tried so hard to calm myself. I told them exactly what happened as I hid in the back room with the door tightly locked. Then I heard talking and the banging of the doors again downstairs. They were back. I burst into tears to the dispatcher out of pure fear and sat on the phone for what felt like ever until my mom, brother, and police pulled up at the same time. Everyone charged through the house to the back door and we instantly saw what they had done. The people saw the keys to the back door on the side of the kitchen, took a broom from outside, broke it in half on the door handle, got the broom through the cat flap, knocked the keys off the side, and pulled them through the cat flap. Although, out of pure luck, as they broke the broom in half, they also managed to snap off the door handle, making it impossible for them to open from the outside. Otherwise, they would have gotten no questions asked and I would have been sitting in my room quietly, completely oblivious. It was clear afterwards that they had been watching the house for a while, waiting until the exact moment they saw my mom's car pull out of the driveway. I'm not sure if they knew I was in there alone or not, but I know after they initially saw me and ran away, they made the choice to come back. So dickheads who don't know how to open doors properly, let's not meet. My friend Sally has had bad run-ins with the neighbors, but this one was the worst. Sally lives very close to me, about 10 minutes walk. We were both around 14 years old when this happened. We live in a rural area, so we both have a lot of land. Sally and I decided to go camping on our land. We bought cheap hammocks and went through the bushland. The days prior, we spent time clearing some of the razor grass with a cane knife to make a path. We probably should have worn long pants because we ended up with little cuts all over our legs and some of our arms. We set up our hammocks and brought quite a few blankets because it gets pretty cold at night, even though we were sweating throughout the day. We were still on our property and hadn't gone into our neighbor's boundary. Her neighbor had just leased the land to new tenants. Sally and I were on our hammocks talking and laughing at around 9 p.m. We heard something in the bush. We thought it was a wallaby. There are plenty of wallabies around here. 
Then we could see a figure of a man. We were whispering to each other to see who it was. At the time, we thought it was her brother. He came and scared us the last time we were camping. Then the person got closer and we were thinking it could have been her dad. It was dark and the bush looked like the same from every angle. We realized that this guy was coming from the opposite direction of her house. We didn't dare move and covered our torches under our blankets. The man came up and said hi and introduced himself as Ben. Now Ben was extremely drunk. He staggered around and reeked of alcohol. He started saying how we had a little nice camp and said something pretty unsettling. I'll have to come out here and sunbake naked on one of these hammocks. Sally and I gave each other a worried look but didn't say anything. It got worse from there. I can't remember everything he said because it was a while ago and he was mumbling on for what felt like forever. But some of the things he said that stuck out were off to kill yous, Wolf Creek style and said you're nearly legal then when he asked us our age. Ben was probably in his 40s. Sally and I were texting each other while he was talking and coming up with an escape plan. He also offered us Puff the Magic Dragon and pulled out a glass pipe. We declined. Sally then said that we were leaving back to the house to make food. He told us to come back. We left our blankets and most of our stuff and legged it there. We told her dad what just happened and we slept inside. The next morning we went back to the campsite to find everything burnt. A circle with probably a 20 meter radius was all burnt. Coming from the circle was a line of burnt grass going towards the neighbor's house. I'm not a firefighter or do forensics, but it seemed obviously that some kind of fuel was used. Sally and I were talking and it dawned on us the possibility that Ben, thinking that we were in the hammocks due to the pile of blankets, Ben was definitely drunk enough not to be able to tell the difference. We went and told Sally's dad, who checked it out, then went next door. Ben's roommate answered the door and said that Ben wasn't home and apologized. He gave Sally's dad $50 for the blankets and hammocks. Nothing more happened for a few months. Sally told me at school how Ben had been caught on camera sneaking around her yard. I went to her house after school because she was going to be home alone until her dad finished work. I ended up sleeping over there that night. That's when he came over. Ben was drunk and came out of the front of Sally's house, started yelling and accusing Sally of stealing his dog. Sally's dad called the police. They arrested him. The next day, we found a knife in the yard. It wasn't from Sally's house. The police came again and we told them about the knife and they got the footage from him on camera as well. I don't know what happened to Ben, but he no longer lives next to Sally. So Ben, let's not meet. This is an occurrence that takes me pretty far from the setting of most of my other encounters and finds me in good old Ohio. You see, I was in a hiatus from my life in general at the time, debating on a fresh start in a new corner of the country. I'd been in Ohio before, but only for a short time, and my memories were quite fond. I decided to go back there to see if I still felt the same way about it. 
I was not employed at the time, but I had a substantial source of income due to the fact that I do tattoo work. It was my tattoo work that allowed me to rent an extended stay motel room for the time being and was unfortunately also the reason this encounter came to pass. I'm going to cover this now to save questions later. I am not a licensed tattoo artist, though that is soon to be changing, and I'm not licensed at this time in this state. I am, however, a good artist with excellent sanitation practices, as two people in my life are professional licensed artists and taught me everything I know. Back to the story. I got a text from someone who had seen a post about my work. She said her name was Kimberly and that she was interested in getting something done. We talked for a bit and compared schedules, all that fun stuff. We were at odds with our timing and decided that I would meet her at her job to further discuss it and so she could see my portfolio. Kimberly worked at a small deli not far from my motel and I headed over there at the appointed time. It seemed as if it was empty with only one other car in the lot other than mine. I grabbed my equipment and went inside and the little bell dinged. A little small Asian man came out to the counter and asked if he could help me. I said I was looking for Kimberly and explained that I had business with her. He said sure, hold on and came out into the lobby area of the deli. Then he went over to the front door, pulled out his keys and locked it. It was one of those doors that had no other locking mechanism, only the key. I couldn't have left without the key. It was needed both ways. Then he turned to me and told me that he was Kimberly and told me to sit down. I reached into the pocket for my phone and realized that I had left it in the car. Then I went to the door and tried it anyway and of course it wouldn't open. The whole time Kimberly was staring at me with a smile. He told me again to sit down so I did. I asked him why he locked me in and he says that it was for our safety. I gave him the benefit of the doubt. He looked harmless and we were in a bad part of town. He started talking about the tattoo, asking questions. He wanted to know if I could do portrait work and I explained that I could and that some of my portrait work was shown in the post where he had gotten my info from. He said he needed seven faces and wanted it to be a whole sleeve. This was beyond the scope of anything we discussed, and I told him it could be done but it would take a while and would have to be more than one session. This seemed to make him uncomfortable. He asked how long and I said, I don't know. It's hard to estimate portrait work as each pick presents its own unique challenges. He asked me how many sessions it would take, and I told him ideally one for each phase, but I might be able to do two at a time. Then I asked him who were the people, if they were family. He didn't answer me right away. He just had a spacey look in his eyes and seemed to stare right through me. After a while, he started talking. The first one he wanted, he said, was a woman he knew in high school. I found it strange the way he said it. Like you don't just get casual acquaintances tattooed on you. You just don't. So I asked why he wanted her tattooed on him. And he told me that this was because she had been his first kill. I just sat there in disbelief. Didn't even know what to say. He started talking again after a few minutes. He said that all of the people he wanted portraits of were people that he killed. He also said he killed more than that. Many more. 
but these were his favorite ones. I didn't know whether or not to believe him, but given the situation, I didn't really want to find out. I asked him why I should tat these people on him when he probably just killed me afterwards too. And he looked legitimately surprised and told me he never even considered it. Odd, especially knowing that I knew where he worked. He went on to tell me some really horrific things about what he's done. Things I won't even repeat here. He gave me names and locations. He was going to give me pictures of the victims for the tattoos. He said that before long he would get caught and he wanted these tats on his arm so he'd never forget those faces while he's in prison. I don't think this man felt that I could be any threat to him. He was so casual about everything, wasn't really even defensive in the least. But I grew up in the hood and done several years in prison so I knew how to handle myself. I didn't really even need to know how as it turned out because I stood up and hit him once and he fell down, seemingly unconscious. I took the keys from him and unlocked the door and ran to my car and left in a hurry. I called the police and reported everything as I drove and this is where it gets really scary. They dispatched officers to the deli and sent one to my motel room so I could file a report on everything. The officer that showed up looked puzzled when I told him where it all happened and asked if I was sure. I said I was and he told me that the deli had been closed for a few weeks now and the owner had disappeared. The owner's family apparently believed that the owner had went to Hawaii for whatever reason. I guess he told them before that he was thinking about it, but he hadn't been in touch so they reported him missing. I told him I was sure and I had proof. I still had the keys to the place. The cop went pale, looked pretty disturbed, but wouldn't say anything more about it. Later on, through means that I can't mention here, I found out a few things that were pretty disturbing to me. One of them was that the owner's family hadn't been able to access the deli at all because it was locked up and they had told the police that the owner had been the only person with the keys. I never heard anything more about it, but I did a little investigating on my own. I searched all the names that he told me and got a few things from it. I can't be certain of these things as they were unrelated to what happened. I got hits on two of the names. The first was a prostitute with several arrests for prostitution. The arrests weren't in the area, but hadn't been too far away either. The second was a similar story about drug charges, but no prostitution. And like the others, she wasn't in the area, but wasn't far off either. No hits for the other missing people under those names at all but a prostitute might not have anyone who would report the missing. Same with a narcotics woman. That, or the people who would possibly report, assumed that she was on a using binge somewhere and neglected to report her missing. I found out nothing at all about the rest. I don't know what to believe about this, but I leaned towards the possibility that this guy was dead serious. His demeanor, the vacant stare in his eyes, him locking up the deli, his behavior practically screamed that something was wrong. I left Ohio very shortly after that and went home. I haven't been back since. I forgot to mention that the police found the deli empty, but it was now suddenly unlocked.
Okay, this might not be as scary to others as it was for someone who was in the situation. This is a recent and still ongoing story. I'll use different names for the sake of the story. Imagine a 5'4", average weight, 16 year old girl. That's me, Lily. Now imagine a 27 year old, tall, muscular guy. That's Jace, also known as my half brother. It all started when my mom got a phone call and Jace saying he had lost his home. He said he didn't eat every day. So my mother obviously wanted her kid home. So she asked my dad and he let him move in. All was good because I stayed away due to not liking to be around strangers. I had not been raised with him and knew nothing about him. So I never talked to him. I finally did and God was that a mistake. He began to make comments about how sexy I was and how I could please him. I was repulsed. He's on drugs and crazy so I thought he was just joking because he is known to say stupid stuff as jokes. Well I quickly learned he wasn't. He repeatedly talked to me in sexual ways and would look me up and down whenever I was near. It made me highly uncomfortable. I text Jace on Facebook saying it was fucking weird that he needed to stop and that he was making me feel uncomfortable. He agreed to that and apologized. End of the story, right? No, that'd be too easy. He stopped for a couple days, then continued like normal. I turned 17 a little later. I'm still 17 right now. He had uncontrollable anger and was awful to my siblings and me. My dad didn't and doesn't know. My mother is crazy and doesn't do anything. She just watches us suffer. She has heard the things he said to me and has said nothing. There's so much more but I'll keep on with the basics. One night set the terror in me. I woke up in the dark to Jace close to me. My lock on my door was broken so it has a chain that he was able to unhook from the outside. I jumped up, shoved him off, and yelled at him. He admits his feelings were real and he knew he was fucked up. I told him if he ever did anything like that again, I would tell my dad. I've slept with a knife ever since then, but my knife was stolen. Jace is a kleptomaniac, meaning he's obsessed with stealing stuff, but that's another story for another time. For unrelated reasons, I went and stayed with my sister for two weeks. So he never said anything because I have blocked him on Facebook now. I come home and he's being rude as usual. Has my little sister terrified that he's going to kill her or something. I don't know what the fuck to do. You don't mess with my little siblings. I asked my older sister to come with me to tell my dad everything tomorrow. Because last time I didn't tell my dad something important. He yelled at me and I have bad anxiety and bipolar. So I try to avoid confrontations at all cost, but it's been going on for too long. I'm not going to give him a warning either. Jace needs something done. It's around 3.30 in the morning and I have scissors next to me just in case something happens again. Yeah, it's that bad. I know it was dumb to wait for so long. I know that I'm doing the right thing telling my dad, but I know my mother will deep down hate me. But at this point, she can go fuck herself too. Remember guys, never wait to report or do something, no matter how scary it is.
So this happened nearly 10 years ago, and I've never really spoken to anyone about it because I didn't want to seem crazy. I've only recently told my husband. When I was in sixth grade, I was sat taking an exam in one of the classrooms, and I had a good view of the outside world through the windows in the room. As you would expect, the room was silent as everyone was busy taking the exam. I had finished early, but wasn't allowed to leave the room, so I sat in my seat and looked out of the window. I should point out, it was around 11 a.m. on a pretty sunny day. As I'm looking out of the window, it suddenly starts to get dark. And I mean dark. This wasn't just some clouds covering the sun. This was as if the sun had disappeared entirely, and it was nighttime. The streetlights came on, and it looked like it was the middle of the night. I remember there was a weird, dark purplish hue to the sky, too. I obviously looked around the room, but no one else seemed to notice, because they were still working on the exam. This lasted for around a minute or two, and then it was like it never happened. The sky was clear again, and it was sunny once more. I've never seen anything like it happened before or after this time, but it's something I'll never forget. This happened in the UK, and it was not an eclipse. I know what an eclipse is. I've seen more than one, and I actually researched eclipses after this event to see if any were due to be happening, and there weren't. Here goes. I can't find any information out about this entity. I'm trying to reach out to see if anyone else has come across her. A few nights ago, I had a dream. I was having a sleepover with a good friend. She was asleep under the blanket. I look at the end of the bed, and there is this long skinny shadow with long wild hair. She reaches out and grabs my ankles and pulls herself up and kind of wraps around me and hisses in my ear. I woke up and she was crouching beside my side of the bed and reaching toward me. She was so tall she reached the ceiling even crouching. She was very thin with long arms and long claw-like fingers, shadowy skin, long black wild hair, black eyes, and most importantly and disturbing a grinning mouthful of long pointed teeth. I started punching and screaming. At first, she grinned wider and then disappeared. My partner woke up to me punching and screaming at my side of the bed. The next day, I texted my friend that was in this dream. We're both sensitive, but she feels and sees things stronger than I do and has a very level head. I also knew that she had seen a similar entity a few years ago in a different part of the city. I sent her a sketch and she confirmed it was the same entity that she had seen. She sent me a painting that she had done of it and it scared me so bad I could barely look at it. Normally she has an answer for things but this thing it scares the hell out of her too. When I was about 10, my grandmother lived in a very nice single wide trailer. It had a long hallway that had a long mirror 
going down the length of the hall. And at the end of the hall was the bathroom and my grandmother's bedroom. For such a small trailer, my cousins and I hated that long hallway. We were all afraid to look in the mirror and always ran as fast as we could to get past it. Several times, I thought I saw a black shadow following me in the mirror, but it was out of the corner of my eye, so it was easy to write off. One day, I was in my grandmother's room playing on her bed, and I saw a dark hooded figure standing behind me in the mirror of her dresser. I was facing the mirror head on and saw the figure clear as day. When I turned to run out of the room, there was nothing behind me, and I've been wary of mirrors ever since. Ironically, the only thing I inherited when my grandmother died was that dresser. But once it was out of the trailer and in my room, I felt no fear when looking at it. I think there was something evil in that trailer, because I haven't had any other experiences since we stopped going over there. It was a sunny evening in 2012, probably late June. I had just graduated high school after a turbulent four years, and my parents let me throw a little get-together in the backyard with friends and family to celebrate. In total, including myself and immediate family, it was probably 15 to 20 people tops. My dad had just finished grilling all the food, and everyone had moved inside to a small screened-in porch area to eat just in case it started getting buggy. Cliche, here's where it gets weird part. Everyone was just sitting around, eating and talking, and in good spirits. Suddenly, the sky gets very, very overcast. I live in an area where sudden storms aren't really a thing, and it didn't feel humid, so it didn't seem like a rainstorm of any kind. It was as though someone switched the sky to a flat gray, when it had been cloudless and sunny just moments before. As soon as I noticed how gray the sky had suddenly become, a horrendously loud noise rang out across the sky. It sounded like a passenger jet engine was landing in our backyard. A hush fell across the entire group, and everyone looked nervously at each other. No one said a word, even my dad, a six-foot-something Norwegian raised by Air Force vets looked seriously, genuinely rattled, a look that I had never seen on him before, and never have since. The even stranger part? It passed as quickly as it came, and no one spoke about it once the clouds lifted. It was as though time had frozen during the moment, and then everyone went back to normal, well, sort of. The rest of the night just felt strangely off, like... Everyone acted kind of robotic, like actors in a play or NPC characters. The air felt tense. No one I've spoken to remembers it. Not my parents, my friends, my family members that were there. Even my sister, who remembers what she wore the first day of kindergarten, doesn't seem to remember. Even weirder is that I forgot about it until just now. I only remembered, now that my parents are selling the house, I'm sitting alone in an empty house in that exact spot, and the memory just came flooding right back. I remember rushing to the window with my friends to try and get a look, but I straight up don't even remember 
if I saw anything or not, which freaks me out that my memory is so spotty. Has anyone else experienced anything similar or have an idea about what happened? This story is definitely going to be hard to believe, but it's 100% true. It's a story that I've told very few people in real life, because I know how crazy it sounds. I know people here have had weird experiences too, and a lot of you know more about folklore and entities than I do. Hopefully, some of you can help explain what I saw. I'd love to hear your theories. This occurred when I was 11 or 12. I'm 28 now. And I was staying the night at my friend Danny's house, who lived just a few houses down from mine. There was a large pond behind our neighborhood, and we spent a lot of time there growing up. We go fishing, ride bikes, explore the small forests, etc. But we really enjoyed catching turtles and tree frogs. It might sound weird, but what can I say? We had somewhat of an obsession with reptiles and amphibians. Another thing I should note, is that there's an old Native American trail that went through the backyards on our street. It wasn't the Trail of Tears, but it was related to it in some way. I don't really remember. Back to the story. I was up late playing video games with Danny, and after a while, we wanted to do something else. It was close to midnight, but we decided to go out and try catching some tree frogs. A family that lived in a nearby house had gone on vacation, and they had a perfect backyard for catching frogs. We hopped their fence and started exploring. Almost immediately, I started getting a weird feeling. I had the feeling we were being watched or something was nearby, and there was this odd energy in the air. I don't really know how to explain it, but something just felt off. I remember feeling afraid, but I had no reason to be. We had done this kind of thing many times before, and it never inspired fear. About 10 minutes in, we thought we could hear the frog saying help me in a croaky, froggy voice over and over again. The weird thing was, we couldn't see any tree frogs with our flashlights, and the yard wasn't that big. They started chanting in unison, and that made it much louder. Feeling more than a little creeped out, we bolted out of there and back to the street. Now, We were standing under a streetlight on the street corner, across from where the frog house was. I looked up at the light and noticed at least 15 dragonflies, attached to each other, like a human centipede. They were all doing a spiraling motion as they flew closer and closer to the light. It was weird. So, we heard and saw two unusual things, but you could possibly explain them away. What happened next, however made absolutely zero fucking sense. After the dragonflies did their thing and flew away, Danny and I remained standing under that streetlight. We began talking about the strangeness of the frogs in particular. We both heard them croaking the same phrase, and we were pretty much just saying what the fuck was that about. At some point during the conversation, I was instantly overcome with the most intense adrenaline rush that I've ever had in my life. That feeling of fear without a source while at the frog house was back, but much, much stronger. 
It was like my fight or flight response was signaled for no reason. Once again, everything felt off and it felt like there was an intense energy all around us, making the air heavy. I was terrified and I found out later my buddy was feeling the same thing. I became as still as possible, listening intently to my surroundings. I didn't hear anything unusual, but I suddenly began to feel drawn to look at the street behind me. I knew something was there. Whatever was behind me was the source of my fear, and it was putting out overwhelming energy with its presence alone. I hesitantly turned around and looked. A side note, I have full body goosebumps just recalling this. In the middle of the street, about 20 yards away from us, there was an ordinary looking five to seven year old girl with long, dark black hair wearing a white nightgown. She was sitting Indian style on the street pavement with a doll on her lap and she was combing the doll's hair with a hairbrush. I was pretty much terrified beyond imagination. I was frozen with fear and could barely think straight. There was an incredible amount of energy in the air and I knew something wasn't natural. She looked innocent enough, but I felt like she could snap me in half with the snap of her fingers if she really wanted to. Another creepy detail was that she never even looked at us. She kept her head down and focused on her doll, but she definitely knew that we were watching her. After what felt like an hour, realistically, probably 15 to 30 seconds, a car turned onto the street and began heading down the hill toward the girl. I remember the headlights getting brighter and brighter as it approached her. You would think, maybe I would try to save her real quick, but I legitimately couldn't move. Also, I didn't really expect her to get hit for some reason. I never felt like she was in any sort of danger. Eventually, she became lost in the car's headlights, never looking up from her doll this whole time by the way, and the car just passed right through her without any sound of a collision. It stopped at the stop sign 15 feet from us and made a right turn. We took our eyes off of where the girl was as we watched the car turn. When we looked back to where the girl had been, she was gone. Instead, there was a dog on the sidewalk, precisely parallel to where the girl was sitting in the street. The dog was looking right at me when I noticed it, almost like it was waiting for me to see it. Then, it just turned around and trotted up the hill in the other direction. After a few seconds, the shock wore off and we sprinted back to Danny's house and spent half the night looking out a second story window toward the street. I don't know what I saw, but Danny saw the exact same thing. I've always felt like there was a reason it happened or a reason it showed itself, whatever it was, to us of all people. Last thing, the house in front of where the girl was seen was haunted. I lived on that street for 10 years and four or five different families lived in the haunted house during those 10 years. All of them said it was haunted. I have a couple stories about that too, but this is already way longer than I wanted it to be. Anyway, thanks for listening if you made it this far. Please let me know if you have any theories on my experience.
My junior year of college, I was staying in the dorms in the city of Boston when I became interested in the occult for the first time. I started reading The Lesser Key of Solomon, and I stopped at Seatree, feeling a connection. But that's not who visited me that night. After reading for hours, I fell asleep. When I woke up, I saw a black mass of particles. I have no idea how else to describe it. It looked like a cloud of black dots, and it spoke. It said, Will you be mine? It was seductive, and I was terrified. I said, No. It asked why, and I replied, I don't even know you. I was shaking, scared out of my mind, and then the particles were gone. I believe in demons partly because of this. It was one of the best moments of my life, and honestly, I'm grateful I saw it. It was beautiful, but so scary, but worth the fear. Demons exist. Who would have thought it? This happened when I was around 7 to 12 years old. The nightlight would reflect an image of what appeared to be a woman's face. She looked old, around her 50s or 60s, with short curly hair and high cheekbones. The reflection was very detailed and very clear. I thought I was just imagining or looking too much into it, but I couldn't think of it as anything else but exactly a woman's face. It would creep me out at night, so much that I wouldn't be able to sleep. Sometimes, it even looked like she changed expressions. On some nights, I'd get a very, very creeped out feeling or bad energy in the room, and she looked like she was crying. I could see the tears running down her cheeks. And on some nights, she looked angry, and she was crying, and her tears looked like blood. And some nights, it was a bright plain circle. It gets weirder. This is the reason why I decided to talk about this. I have never mentioned it to my sister, because at the time, I thought I just had a vivid imagination, and I didn't want to scare her. Ten years later to this day, my sister casually mentions, I remember when we were kids, I used to see a woman's face on our ceiling, and it was the creepiest thing I've ever saw. I told her I thought I was the only one that saw it, and she mentions that it looked like she would change facial expressions and looked like sometimes she was crying blood, or she'd catch her mouth open late at night like she was screaming. I have no idea what this was. I'm usually pretty skeptical of the paranormal, and the idea of this is very unsettling. I've been quite lucky in life, and don't have many stories worth sharing on this subreddit. In fact, only two come to mind. This post will tackle one of the stories, the slightly more unbelievable one, the one with plausible deniability and a decent amount of conflicting factors, but also the one that could have gotten very bad.
had we not bailed. Last summer, my friend Aaron and I were both interning in Washington, D.C. for separate companies. My friend left first, May 18th, and I flew in two weeks later. For the first two weeks of the internship, Aaron lived at his uncle's apartment in Northern Virginia before moving into summer housing at George Washington University shortly before I arrived. Because he was the only permanent intern in his office and because he had yet to move in with the other students his age, Aaron was quite lonely. Roughly a week into his internship, he got a message from an old boss a few years his senior, John. John said he saw Aaron was in D.C. through Facebook posts and offered to grab lunch and hang out. Aaron, not having anyone else to talk to there, was more than glad to accept. They met up and chatted. John said he was still working at the digital advertising company he had come out to D.C. for and was having the time of his life. He suggested Aaron come over to party at his place that next Tuesday at a condo in Anacostia because Aaron was alone without friends in the area. For those unfamiliar with the D.C. area, Anacostia is a historically African-American neighborhood in the southeast quadrant of the city and not typically a place where you'd find a pasty white guy like John. This location set off a small alarm bell in Aaron's head, as the firm John was working at paid its staff well enough that they could afford places outside of Anacostia. He asked me to chat with one of my co-workers at the internship, who coincidentally had been friends and co-workers with John back in our home state before they moved out to work in D.C. I asked my co-worker about John on the first day. Monday, and he said that he had practically fallen off the face of the earth a few months ago. Nights at his apartment had stopped without warning, and he had sizably dialed down the contact he had with my co-worker and other people in his circle. I also found out that the apartment my co-worker mentioned John lived at was in Adams Morgan, a higher-end neighborhood than Anacostia. It turned out that my co-worker didn't know John had moved. Further research that John was working for a telemarketing firm now, instead of for high-powered political consultants, and that while he was registered to vote in Anacostia, it was not at the address this party was supposedly going to be held at. Tuesday came, and Aaron went to Anacostia, but got cold feet and went back home telling John that he had forgotten about a summer school assignment that was due. In reality, the thought of going to a party on a Tuesday night in a seedy neighborhood, all by himself, was too disconcerting for Aaron. John understood and told Aaron there'd be another thing on Friday. I thought this was the end of it and that Aaron would leave him on read. But instead of backing out, Aaron pressured me to join as well over the course of Thursday evening. I was quite resistant to the matter, but he got another friend back home to help persuade me. 
We informed her of our plans, and that if we didn't text her by midnight at the end of Friday, to start worrying and call the people in D.C. about our last known location. Aaron also dangled a sizable amount of weed over my head to get me to agree. I had only had it once before that summer, but just a few hours after arriving, Aaron introduced me to his edible of choice for the past two weeks. A Corova Blondie, containing 500 milligrams of THC in it. I took a small piece of the edible on the Sunday I flew in, and wow, once it kicked in, I was tripping. We went to watch game two of the NBA finals at a sports bar, and everything in my field of vision was swimming. Ordering food was hard, as was eating and keeping my balance. Typical background noise registered as the sound of waves crashing against the shore for me. But the most jarring effect this blondie had on me was when that conversations around me sounded like they were taking place in Russian. I could pay attention to one person and hear English from them. But anyone else would be speaking Russian. Conversations would change languages if I stopped paying attention to them and focused on something else. I was incredibly messed up as a result of taking this blondie, and this is pertinent to the story at hand. Friday rolled around, and I met up at Aaron's dorm. He texted John to make sure he could bring me along, and got an odd response. Something along the lines of, That's okay. Does he not have other friends he could hang with on Friday? Or are you the only person he knows here? This put us somewhat on edge, but we still had our friend back home who would raise hell if we didn't get in touch with her by midnight. For added security, I messaged the guy I was renting the apartment from that I'd possibly be going to Anacostia that night for a party and to call the cops if I didn't get in touch with him by 1am. We told John about our blondie and ask if we should bring it with us. He responded with, There'll be tons of weed, drinks, and girls here. No need to bring it, but definitely come messed up beforehand. This was another concerning response, as a nerdy-looking telemarketer living in one of our poorer parts of D.C., who had cut off contact with his friend group in the area, almost certainly couldn't put on a party like that. Hell, I don't even know if he'd want to. It's far more befitting of a college frat house, not someone in their mid-twenties who wasn't much of a partier in college. These two started to sow some doubt in both of us, but we pressed on. Taking the blondie, we worked on some homework and grabbed dinner before leaving around 8.20pm to get to the address around 9pm. On the way to the subway, we text John again, who said he was driving around picking up stuff for the party and wouldn't be able to let us in, but someone should be there anyway. We got on at Aaron's local shop and took the train over to the East Plaza, where we'd have to change lanes. All the while we felt the weed slowly ramping up, but not kicking in full force. Seconds after getting off the train, I felt the weed kick in but almost instantly a stronger force came over me as well. 
I became acutely hyper-aware of my surroundings, and my brain felt like it was starting to think and process faster. I felt capable of writing pages and explaining the pros and cons of going to the party or bailing, analyzing the likelihood that John was going to kidnap us or was just down to hang with us. I was thinking through and visualizing every possible outcome while I initially thought this weird burst of productivity and hyper-awareness was a byproduct of taking the weed. I've never experienced anything like that since. It felt surreal and also incredibly scary. As if not using every last fraction of this burst of thinking would doom me to being kidnapped. Or killed. We got on the train to Anacostia and Aaron got rapidly more scared about the situation. My burst of hyper-awareness had reached its peak, and I told him I wasn't comfortable continuing further. He was still slightly hesitant, and offered that we get off at Anacostia but not leave the station, instead asking John to walk with us to his house. Before we could text John of our new plans, he texted us, angry that we weren't there. The people at the condo have said you haven't got there. Why? We explained our mild hesitation about the neighborhood. This was my first time in the area, and asked if he could drive to the station and then lead us to the house. I'm not driving, but sure. Had to work late and I'm currently on the subway home. About half an hour ago, the story was that he couldn't let us in because he was off buying stuff for the party. Driving around. Now he's working late and riding the subway home and somehow able to send text messages from the subway, which doesn't have that decent of a connection. I explained this discrepancy to Aaron, and we agreed we needed to bail. Right around then, my hyper-awareness sensation dissipated rapidly, and I turned into the same stone lunatic I was last Sunday. Heard stuff, felt dizzy, could barely think. For some reason, despite all of this, we wanted to wait out to confirm that John wasn't on his way, so we stumbled away from the turnstiles and towards the end of the station, where the rear end of the eastbound trains would be when they arrived. We waited a bit and got another message from John. Just go to Navy Yard. Should be there soon. After a few more minutes, an eastbound train arrived. A few people got off, given that this was late on a weekend in a residential area. There were very few people getting off, and none of them were white men. John hadn't gotten off at the station. Just then, a text came in from John. Just got off the train. Should be at the turnstiles in a minute. Stay there and we could walk to my place. This was way too much for both Aaron and I. Our eyes didn't deceive us, so we bolted onto the train and left the station. He hurriedly wrote something to John about me throwing up because of how strong the weed was, and John said it was disappointing that happened, but understandable. Maybe I'd want to go over to his place to rest. We ignored that text. In our hurry to get out of that situation, we didn't realize we had gotten on an eastbound train 
which was taking us away from both of our apartments and deep into southeastern Maryland. We got off a few stops later and hopped on westbound. The weed was at its peak when we returned west, and we grabbed something to eat. I left Aaron and stumbled to the metro, which was incredibly hard to do without a friend helping guide you. Signs were blurry. My mind was spinning. And it was hard. I finally got home at around 12.30am. A few weeks later, Aaron got one more text from John, empathizing that we couldn't make it to the party and offering to take Aaron hiking with him in rural West Virginia, preferably without Hunter. That text was also ignored in the number block. I had siloed this story away for the past year, but decided to look John up out of sheer curiosity, and I was floored to find out he's doing quite well for himself. He's at a different political consulting firm, no longer a telemarketer, back with his former circle of friends, and in a stable relationship with someone. Maybe we were just far too paranoid from the super powerful edible to think straight, but Christ, there had been so many red flags that night. John, I really hope you're doing well for yourself, but just in case, let's not meet. This is kinda long, so please, bear with me. Back in my early 20s, I moved to Melbourne to go to university. Because of some of my dodgy friends I knew from outside of my university, I somehow wound up as the guy to go to for drugs with my classmates. I hated the reputation, but maybe felt a little bit cool at the same time. Ecstasy and speed, mostly. I was at the bottom of the drug dealer food chain and the type of idiot who jacks the price up $10 a pill, mainly so I could have enough money to drink and party. I had no guilt ripping these people off. These were mostly rich kids who lived with their parents and didn't have to work to support themselves through university. Dealing them drugs was so easy and non-threatening. A few years after I finished at university, I was working an office job that was boring and paid peanuts. By now, my friends and I had pretty much grown out of the desire to take drugs on weekends. My drug dealing days had well and truly finished. It was 11pm on a Tuesday night. I just got home from a draining day at work and was exhausted and in a bad mood. I plonked myself on the couch and stared at the ceiling, trying to muster up the courage to get up and shower before bed. My phone starts flashing and vibrating on the coffee table next to me. I looked at the caller ID, and it was T-Bone, the nickname I had for a guy I met at a festival years ago and ended up spending a bit of time with here and there. He was a huge, friendly, weed-smoking, acid-tripping hipster with an impressive beard. I hadn't spoken to this guy in well over a year, 
So when I saw his caller ID on my phone, I immediately thought, huh, he probably needs drugs. I answered, and we exchanged some pleasantries, and then I could hear the tone in his voice change to that awkward, hey, could I ask you a favor, kind of tone. He wanted drugs, and a lot of them, $2,000 worth to be precise. When I asked him what specifically he wanted, he just said, as many ecstasy and bags of speed that I can get. He laughed. This was way outside of my comfort zone. Even when I was dealing back in uni, 10 pills was usually the maximum I would offload to anyone at any time. It was late. I was tired and figured that I can clear an easy $500 after purchasing from one of my guys I used to buy from. I told T-Bone that I would call him back and see what I could do. To my surprise, the first person I called was Stover, and he was able to help me out, and he was only a five minute drive from me. We discussed the terms and conditions, which seemed reasonable. 60 ecstasy, and three grams of speed for $1,500. I called T-Bone, and he was happy to part with the $2,000 for this amount. I met Stover out front of his luxurious apartment building. We had a quick chat and he joked about wanting to meet the guy I'm selling to. We shook hands and I was on my way to T-Bone. I asked T-Bone where he wanted to meet, and he told me where he was. I Google mapped the address, it was a 45 minute drive from me. Had I known he was this far away, I wouldn't have agreed to sell him anything. But I couldn't back out now. The address he gave me was in what was probably one of the worst neighborhoods in Australia. Known for its violent crimes, murders, and of course, drug dealing. For anyone reading this living outside of Australia, they certainly don't show this in tourist brochures. I also won't mention the name of the place, because I don't want to offend anyone reading this that might live there. I started the journey. I now had plenty of time to think about how stupid I am. I had a ridiculously illegal amount of drugs on me, and I was driving out to the roughest neighborhood in the country. After ages of sitting on the freeway, I took the exit and was approaching my destination. At this point, I was so tired that I was in an almost dreamlike state. Every set of lights I pulled up to, people in cars next to me would give me greasy looks, trying to act hard and start a confrontation. I pulled into the street where the house was. Your destination is on the left, my phone told me. The street was so dark because the street lights were out, and there was cloud cover, so no moon. The houses on this street looked dilapidated and abandoned. This didn't feel right. The house T-Bone said he was at had boarded up front windows and graffiti tags on them, and there weren't any lights on. I called T-Bone. No answer. I redialed and thought it was about to ring out when he picked up. Hey T-Bone, I'm out front. Okay, cool. Come in, 
he said. No, you come out to the car, I replied. Hang on a sec, he said and hung up. I was thinking. I hardly know this guy. He had been at a few parties I went to. We hung out, but I don't know anything about him. I saw him emerge from the side of the house, pushing through bushes that blocked the pathway. It was the only car parked on the street. He saw me and gestured for me to come over. I had no idea who he was with. I had no idea who he was with, so I thought it was time to get into character. I took my jacket off so I was only wearing a white singlet and put my filthy black trucker cap on that I kept in the glove box. I was hoping this would help me look a bit more intimidating. My friends often joked how I looked tougher than I am. I have some football and kickboxing induced facial scars, combined with a pretty large physique from smashing weights for years. I was big enough and scary looking enough to be intimidating. But truth be known, I'm really a marshmallow who avoids confrontations. I shook hands with T-Bone in the front yard of his place. I felt at ease when he gave me a happy greeting and thanked me for coming out this way. He told me to follow him, and we went through the bushes around to the back of his place. I could hear music. Sounds like they were bumping dubstep through distorting speakers. I could hear a few people's voices. I could hear a few voices, and I could smell cigarette smoke. T-Bone ripped the back door open, and the smell and sound hit me harder. I've been to some nasty house parties, but this was horrific. There were three of them in the kitchen. There was a flashlight attached by string to the 12-foot ceiling, swinging back and forth slowly like a pendulum. This was the only lighting. The swinging light made it difficult to see the people in the kitchen, but with each sway, I would catch a glimpse of their faces. They were absolute toothless junkies, all shirtless and skinny, with bad tattoos. We entered the kitchen, and one of them closed the door behind us and stood in front of it arms folded as if he was guarding it. One of them came forward and told me his name was Jay. Not like he was introducing himself. It was more of a statement. His face was full-blown meth. He sized me up and looked at T-Bone and said, I thought you said this guy was a punk. T-Bone looked at him in total shock. As Jay turned to T-Bone, the flashlight swung past and I noticed he was holding a big screwdriver behind his back. Now I realized what was happening, and I felt like an idiot. I've walked into an ambush. Get a guy with a ton of drugs and come around and rob him. Jay turned back to me. He was about six feet away from me. He showed me the screwdriver and said, What do you got for me? with a big toothless smile. The fact I was so tired and pissed off kinda worked for me because I didn't show I was scared. I squared up to him and said, in a nonsense tone, give me the cash and I'll show you. To Jay which replied, 
Nah, T-Bone told me that these were on loan. I looked at T-Bone who looked back at me and shook his head and mouth. I'm sorry. Jay looked at me with such hatred. It looked as though he was in pain. Give us the drugs. If it wasn't so dark in here, he would have easily seen my overinflated pocket where the drugs were stashed in an envelope. I looked at the guy in front of the door, and as soon as our eyes met, he put his arm over the door handle, confirming that he wasn't going to let me leave. We all stood there trading glances. The swinging light made everyone's shadows look like they were moving. Jay didn't like this. T-Bone broke the silence and said, Jay, chill out, I'll get the money. And he left the kitchen. I thought he was going to bail on me. Jay slowly came towards me, pointing the screwdriver at me. He said in a raspy matter-of-fact tone, I'll kill you. I've done it before. Try me. That's cute, I replied. Then the painful anger came back into his face. I've never seen anything like it. I slowly put my feet in a fight stance to prepare myself for what was about to happen. T-Bone walked back in and said, Here's the cash, which briefly diffused the situation. I did a quick count. It was 1700 Close enough. I threw the envelope of gear to Jay, and the door guard moved and I got out of there. T-Bone followed me and he tried to give me an apology. Dude, I had no idea this was going to happen. I'm so sorry. I just said, you owe me $300, and drove away. I never got the extra 300 and I never dealt drugs again. I also, thankfully, never met Jay again. I was driving home through back roads I had never been on and came across a bookstore in a tiny town in the woods. The bookstore was actually a house where the front of the home had been converted into a store. There was a box on the porch that read 50 cent books. So I stopped to see if there were any Stephen King books in there. A middle-aged woman comes out with a huge smile and gives me a bowl of fruit and some tea. I'm like, this place is awesome, and rifle through books while eating the fruit and downing the tea. Inside the store, there were a lot of cool art books and stuff, so I spent some more time in there. She brought me more tea, even when I said, no thank you, that's plenty. She still kept refilling, gave me dessert too, brownies and cookies. I didn't realize at the time, but she was drugging me. It's hazy to remember the details, but at some point, she closed the shop. 
telling me to take my time looking at the books. She told me that she was going to take a shower and was gone for a while. When I was ready to pay, I had to wander back through her house to find her. I found her in her bedroom. She was in bed. I'm pretty sure she was naked. At the time, I thought, that's weird. Why is she watching an exercise video in bed? But later realized she was watching porn. You might think this is hot, but it isn't. She was my mom's age and had been telling me how I reminded her of her kids in college. So, not hot. I told her I was ready to pay and she showed me how to open the register. So I went and opened it, put in what I thought I owed, took out the change, and left. When I stumbled outside, a fire engine drove by, screaming with sirens. In the distance was a glow of a big forest fire, and the stars were being covered by smoke. A tall man on a horse watched the fire truck pass. He looked right at me took a piece of wood or something out of his mouth and said, Town's burning. I swear to God I have a crystal clear memory of this happening, even though I'm sure it couldn't have. By this point, I guess I was seriously tripping balls on something. I'm not a drug guy, so I don't know what I had but I was out of my mind and could hardly walk. I got back in my car and drove home along the twisting road on tall cliffs above the ocean. Twice I realized I was on the wrong side of the road. One of the times I realized this because a massive truck was headed straight for me, laying on the horn and flashing its lights. I kept thinking about how my car could be like an airplane and a submarine if I drove off the cliff. I can't believe I made it home alive. Later I realized I was in that house for four hours looking at books. At least, that's what I hoped to hell I was doing. Hi, this is my first ever Reddit post. I purposely researched a subreddit where I could share this and perhaps just get it off my chest. English is my second language, so I apologize for any grammar errors. I live in San Jose, California, and I recently moved downtown. For those not familiar with the area, let's just say it's not the safest part of town. I lived by myself in an apartment complex. That night, I had one of my best friends visiting from LA. I haven't seen my friend in a while, so we decided to have an old school weed, video games, and horror movie marathon. We're in our early 30s. It was around 1.30 AM. We're high as kites by this point and in the middle of some silly horror movie. 
Now, imagine how the following must have felt. Someone is screaming in the movie. It's loud. Then an intense banging started. Boom. Boom. It wasn't the movie though. It was the window. My body literally froze. My brain was going at a thousand miles per minute. I look at my friend right in the eyes. He turned pale and literally looked like he had seen a ghost. During all of this, the banging has been going on for at least 15 seconds. My brain couldn't accept it, and I tried to rationalize it by thinking, Oh, maybe the volume of the TV was too high, so it's just the neighbor complaining. I snapped out of it. There's no way. This wasn't the, hey your TV is too loud type of knocking. This was more like, the I'm coming in type. It lasted for what I thought was forever. I finally found the courage to yell something. All I could come up with was, Who is it? Then more banging. I didn't have the courage to go look through my blinders, so I rushed into my room. I own a 9mm pistol, so I grabbed it and waited. I was terrified by the idea that I would have to make a life-changing decision if this person would have broken in. The banging stopped. I told my friend we should rush outside of my apartment, go to the secondary entrance of the building. That way we could see who's in front of my window. But at the same time, he, she, or it would be at a safe distance from us. I drop my pistol on my bed. We rush outside. We open the building door. We see the most basic white dude ever on a bicycle. Of course. That makes sense. This idiot is banging on the wrong window. That's a huge relief. Yo, you got the wrong window. I yell at the dude. Huh? He says. So I asked if he was banging on my window. He says, Oh no man, that wasn't me. But I just saw this really sketchy dude walking that way. Yeah, sure you did buddy. I thought to myself. He had a door fob so he apparently lived here. We went back to my apartment, having a laugh. This guy couldn't even admit he messed up. A couple of hours go by. It's around 3.40 a.m. now, and the munchies are hitting hard. Thank God for the vending machine on the third floor. We get in the elevator. Life is good. The door opens up. Sitting on one of the chairs, there's a guy with a thousand-yard stare. He was wearing a beanie and a long coat. I immediately knew he didn't live here. I immediately knew. It was him. The basic white guy wasn't lying. 
I didn't say a word. Neither did my friend. We kept walking. He stood up and entered the elevator. All I told my friend was, Damn, that guy looked really sketchy. I didn't want to panic him, nor panic myself. As we arrived at the vending machine, we both, almost at the same time, said, It was him. We then hear one of those emergency doors open. He walked up the fire escape. My friend grabs a small plant, ready to bash him over the head with it. We're cornered. And there he is. He walks in. There's only a ping pong table between him and I. He kept his hands in his pockets while walking my way. Is he holding a knife? I can't let him get to striking distance. How's it going, man? I said, while walking away from him. He's young, around 5'10", stocky body type. His face doesn't look healthy. He mumbles something I can't understand, followed by... Why are you walking away? I ain't no popo. We did one full circle around the table. No panic yet. We keep walking while he slowly follows us. We open the door that goes to the poolside. He immediately rushes to it so he wouldn't get locked outside. As soon as we turn the corner, we sprinted. Rushed to the other side to re-enter the building and go down to my apartment. I opened the emergency door and... There he was. He had predicted our move. He was 20 feet from us. We rushed back to the other door. And yet again... He rushed back there. By this point, I yelled. I called the police on you. I was bluffing. We had one way out. Down the dog walk that would lead into the street. We sprinted like our lives depended on it. Because it really felt like it did. We're rushing down the stairs five steps at a time. We're rushing down the stairs five steps at a time. Smash open the door. We're finally in the streets. We run around the building and finally managed to get to my door. I don't drop my keys nor miss the hole. It's a smooth door unlocking. I had piercing focus somehow. We're in. We lock the door and call 911. The operator tells us they had received multiple calls from my building. Apparently the guy was banging on people's door like a maniac. After one and a half hours, finally SJPD shows up. We search around the whole complex. One of the officers tells me that it took so long because some guy has gone full joker on his wife. Carved a smile on her face. I was kind of surprised the officer shared that with us. 
didn't think they could. As if our night wasn't creepy enough, we obviously didn't find anyone. The funny part of this is, when we got back, we realized that my friend had ran the whole time with the plant in his hand, the one he was supposed to use as a weapon, and brought it back to my apartment. The unfunny part of this is that my friend left the next day, and my window still faces the streets. The streets that the long coat guy is still roaming.